Welcome to Web3 with A6NZ, a show about building the next generation of the internet from the team at A6NZ Crypto. That includes me, your host, Sonal Joxi. This show is for anyone, whether entrepreneur, developer, business leader, policymaker, creator, or gamer. And today's all new episode is all about Web3 games and on-chain gaming as enabled by blockchains and crypto. Our expert guests, both from Team A6NZ Crypto, include Ariana Simpson, general partner, and Eddie Lazarin, CTO. As a reminder, none of the following is investment, business, legal, or tax advice. Please see a6nz.com slash disclosures for more important information, including a link to a list of our investments. We also link to the various posts referenced in this discussion in the show notes, so be sure to check those out as well. The discussion takes us on a high-level tour through the entire space, from degrees of Web3 to fully on-chain games, trends like play to earn and its evolution, briefly touching on trends like metaverse and where that comes in, as well as covering broader themes such as design and user onboarding, open source, phases and frameworks of technology innovation, and more, weaving in world building throughout. We also pulse check where we are in terms of readiness, what's working, what's not working, and where the exciting design spaces are. But we begin with a quick overview of what is Web3 Gaming. Okay, can you give me like a high-level overview of Web3 Gaming? What I'm looking for here is kind of the map and the terrain, because I like to do kind of a taxonomy in all my episodes to kind of lay out, you know, this whole landscape. Sure. So I'll start by saying that the whole category of Web3 games is super, super new, because until really just a couple of years ago, it wasn't possible to have this kind of experience or game world on chain at all because of infrastructure limitations. This, I think, is really interesting because it applies a new set of constraints to game makers. And whenever there's constraints within a new medium, it's both a challenge and an opportunity. But constraints can often kind of breed creativity as well. So we obviously work very closely with our games fund. And I would say that when we started seeing Web3 games emerge, there were maybe, you know, a few companies a month. And that might have been a very small percentage of the total of companies that were coming to the Games Fund. And what we've seen is that a significant majority of games companies include Web3 components of some sort. Another attribute of Web3 games, which isn't necessarily a requirement, but something that we have often seen is the presence of NFTs or non-fungible tokens, which lend themselves really well to existing in-game contexts because they can be used to represent a variety of different in-game assets or in-game elements. So in terms of what specifically goes into a Web3 game, one of the important elements we've seen is this idea that players can be owners. And what that means is that they're not just accumulating value for the makers of the game, but actually able to own their assets, own their swords, own their tokens, and be able to sell them, transfer them, move them out of the game universe. And so not only do they have a sword in the game context, but they can then take it to OpenSea, or they can lend it out, or they can use it potentially in a different game context. So that, I think, at a very high level is sort of the broad umbrella of what we're talking about. So it's funny because I think people forget this because Vitalik Buterin has become such a icon in like crypto and Web3 world for obvious reasons as a creator of Ethereum. But people forget sometimes his backstory that the whole reason he was motivated to enter a cryptocurrency yeah. was because he was a World of Warcraft player and his character totally. i think got like what happened like it got like nerfed or something i can't I forget, remember i forget no i think they deleted yeah. it or like he lost some item yeah but it was like that basically because this idea i just want to emphasize and pause on this big idea you mentioned ariana which is that it's actually a big deal because there are people who spend so much time essentially doing oh, yeah. free labor for others and on top of it people can literally just like whip the rug out from under you. So just to kind of pause on the impact of that and why that matters. So no, totally. And in fact, I want to talk about why that is such a potent and interesting idea. I mean, the way that I would describe the taxonomy and space of on-chain games is that there are three key interesting properties that crypto brings to games. Financialization, composability, and consensus. You know, I think the financialization element is what has made a lot of people both love and hate Web3 games. 
Totally. It's very simple and it has its pros and its cons. But financialization is just a consequence of the free tradeability of anything. The minute you can just move it around and exchange it without trusting some third party or requiring the permission of the game developer or something like that, you can immediately get financialization. But then more interestingly and more profoundly, there's composability and consensus. Composability is like a programmer's favorite computer property. It's the property that means that you can take someone else's code and mix it with your code or remix and combine it with another thing yeah, and make something new and make something better. This is one of the most exciting and interesting things about software in general. And games also enjoy composability. We just typically call them mods or extensions oh, yeah. or things like that. And don't even get me started about how big mods are. I hope we get a chance to talk a little about mods and modability. Oh, hell, heck yeah, <laughs> hell yeah. I, I came up in the age of like, you know, Doom and whatnot. And that was like some of the original OG modders, but yeah. Totally. And then there's consensus. And consensus is a really interesting one. And this is kind of where the Vitalik idea comes into its clearest contrast, is that what happens to your item or character or experience or whatever in the context of a game is fully and totally decided by the game creator. And that's always how it's been. And that's just a total fact of reality when you're playing with games. So if something goes wrong in the context of the game, it's this pure hierarchy where the game developers have unilateral control over the experience of the game. But in crypto, you can create a network that has enshrined rules that enforce what happens in the context of that program. And if a game is a program, then we can make a game where the game developer, original developer, no longer controls those rules. And so you can now create a game that is decentralized or a game that exists far beyond the scope of its original creators. On-chain games so far, just to connect back with the original question, which is, how do you taxonomize on-chain games today? We've begun to explore financialization, and that's what we've seen the last couple of years. We have some early interesting experiments in composability, like Dark Forest and a few others. And that's the space that a lot of developers are playing right now. And we haven't had too much in the consensus realm but that's a very interesting area for games to go. So each of these are different in terms of how intuitive or how complicated they are. And we've gone different depths into each of them. But that's how I think about the way engineers are experimenting with what crypto offers games. That's great. On that note, Ariana, so Eddie's taxonomy really actually is really about the features than necessarily types and how those features are being deployed and the readiness of them. Let's start with one of them, financialization, which let's just take this one head on. Where does play to earn fit into this? And how has that one evolved? Especially because you earlier, when you talked about the definition of this broader swath of crypto-enabled gaming in general, you mentioned how the creation of some of the capture of the value is one component. I mean, my perspective on it is that it's really awesome and it's actually a superior model it was not perfectly implemented in the first iteration. So I think what we're seeing is taking what was learned from V1 and making improvements and modifications. Regulating an economy, whether it's a real economy or an in-game economy, which is nonetheless very complex, is super challenging. And so a lot of the issues that we saw around inflation we're really just the byproduct of early experiments with a fundamentally new and very exciting model. New things are almost never implemented perfectly on the first time. So I no. think that's you know a, a very common problem. But I think there's still a lot of enthusiasm for the approach. It's undeniable that a lot of people benefited very materially in the Philippines and other yeah. parts of the world during the pandemic from playing play-to-earn games, specifically Axie Infinity, which really kind of kicked off the initial movement and was really life-changing for a lot of people. Axie Infinity really was so much in the limelight just as a result of the speed and vigor with which people started to play it and adopted it. So that team and that ecosystem really deserve a lot of credit for having kind of developed a new and very exciting model, which is now in the process of being refined, both by that team and other teams who are 
taking that concept saying, yes, it is fundamentally better for players to actually participate in the upside of the value that they're creating. And instead, just tweaking parameters, tweaking, you know, sinks and faucets and making sure that the economy is balanced in a way that makes for a more sustainable game world. What are sinks and faucets again? So within any kind of token network, you will have sinks, which are basically places that tokens or ways that tokens are taken out of circulation. So ways that tokens are used that might be to breed a new NFT or to level up in some way. And then you have faucets, which are how people earn tokens within the game. That's great. On the play to earn, I think there's the expression itself. Then there's the model where the model is, you know, does it make sense to make games where players through their actions can earn money or earn valuable things? And there will be a lot of games where players can take economic value out of the system or accumulate economic value in the system. And that's totally going to be a thing that needs to be tweaked. But I don't know what's going to happen to the phrasing, right? I don't know whether it would be useful even to address the distinction. Yeah, I mean, it's already evolved, right? Because we first saw play to earn, which sort of indicates a strong financial bent, obviously. That's true. The to earn. That's exactly. a good point. I mean, P2E. Yes, very direct in its sort of nod to financialization. But then it morphed into play and earn. And I think play and earn is a much better place for us to set our expectations in the sense that these games were not necessarily designed to be a workplace, at least for the majority of players. And so you want to have a game in which people are playing and earning. They're having fun at the same time. They're also benefiting and capturing some of the value that they've produced, but they're not necessarily just there to grind. So as the actual dynamics of how these economies are managed have shifted, it's also been interesting to see a shift in the nomenclature. It was play to earn, and then it's play and earn. And eventually, I think, honestly, it just becomes part of games. It won't even necessarily be defined as like a separate thing. Yeah, it's infinitely better to be clear than play or earn, which is essentially what seems to be the thing that is like either you play and most people only play or you earn by taking assets off market. Like I'm thinking of gold Mm -hmm. farms and stuff where you would take assets out and like, and even like in the olden days, gosh, to get even more old school, you would literally take assets and try to sell them like in other third-party secondary marketplaces, even in person. absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Believe me, one of my brother's primary sources of income in high school was Diablo (laughs) 2 items and Counter-Strike ghost skins after that. Yeah, Counter-Strike is particularly one of them, actually, because people really love like the weapons, treasury boxes, and there's like all these things that you can really earn and spend time getting. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the thing is that there were flaws in economic models we've seen experimented with so far, but... If you take the fundamental premise, the idea is that right now, the norm in games is that when players pay, 100% of those proceeds go to the game company. And the fundamental experiment here is what if some portion of that goes to players under certain conditions? And it's incumbent on the game designer to decide what players need to do to get how much and when to some degree to kind of start the initial conditions of the system and create it in a way that it's balanced and reaches a sustainable equilibrium. But that fundamental idea is an interesting idea. And and look, like if you go to some of the most popular gaming models in mobile games today, they survive off the idea that some players are willing to pay quite a lot to keep playing with the benefits and luxuries and capabilities that they want. And many other players do not. And well, I don't know. I'm going down a darker path, so... Yeah, no, you're not going down a darker path. It's actually a very important point to pause on, which is you're basically talking about the days and still current days, frankly, of pay to play and essentially like these very expensive whales that really make the whole economy work. Exactly. In games where some small portion of players pay and the others do not, what's happening is that the players that pay are paying for content and the content is having a bunch of other players to crush, right? That is what it is. So the players who are not paying are content for the players who are paying. That's right. And and what they are being compensated with 
in order to exist as content is a little bit of fun. But there's a lot being left on the table here. What if they could be compensated in some way for doing that and also have fun doing it, right? I think it's really interesting to experiment with systems that can more richly incentivize and reward people for all contributing with each other to create an enjoyable gaming experience. That's an interesting design space. Yeah, and I would just add that you guys are talking about this under the categorization of expanding this definition and notion of financialization and what value actually means. But it's also worth noting that value does not necessarily mean playing or being played. It can also mean things like giving good feedback on UI and evolving narratives and storytelling for others and creating new materials or things that people can trade or being a community moderator and a supporter and someone who really supports the ecosystem. And right now, those folks are doing essentially another form of invisible labor that is not being compensated as well. And that's also value creation. Exactly. So if in that financialization, composability and consensus framework, these first Web3 games have been experimenting with financialization. And that touches on who's doing what kinds of work and being compensated for what kinds of work and where are the value flows going, all the different kinds of value flows. And it's incredible that we get to experiment with that. That hasn't always been true. And crypto makes it a little bit easier to make explicit the different kinds of value and the different kinds of objects and the flows of these things. It makes them legible to experimentation. And that is what's really interesting about unpacking the financialization angle. We're going to see all kinds of cool stuff there. It's just there's a new set of tools for making visible, legible, and manipulable these components of games. There's a new paradigm in town. Sorry, whoa, I'm just kidding. Whoa. I'm going to cut myself. Whoa. I'm going to cut myself out saying that. But I am going to say the by goblin the way, when you voice. guys are talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, you have to hear my golem impression. I, I posted oh this in our god. Slack. I do it with my niece all the time. My precious, my precious. Sorry, I can't do this <laughs> oh my right god, now. You're killing me. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I'm a little loopy. It's a long week, yeah, guys. It's no, probably I know afternoon. The feeling. I know the feeling. <laughs> anyway, back to Ariana. One last point on this notion that you mentioned about the financialization and sort of the initial growing pains and opportunities of play to earn and play and earn and the evolution of that term. I really think this is a cliche thing to mention, but I think it's worth mentioning. I say cliche because it feels like so many VCs mention Carlotta Perez's framework and book. And frankly, I don't think any of them have actually read it. I have. Um, oh, you have? <laughs> Yay. Okay. So maybe you could quickly... No, I would yeah. never quote a book I haven't read. Are you kidding me? <laughs> That's what I absolutely love about you. Actually, do you want to quickly summarize what it is? Because I actually think it's very fitting here. Sure. So in Carlotta Perez's book, Technological Revolutions in Financial Capital, which by the way, she wrote well before. Bitcoin was a twinkle in anybody's eye. Um, She really traces the evolution and history of a number of very important technological revolutions, including automobiles and the railroad and things like that. And it's really interesting to note that she's able to trace a very clear recurring pattern of how these technologies start out and then evolve, which generally looks like There's initially an invention or some sort of discovery that holds considerable promise, but is still very much in its infancy. Then there's a period of enthusiasm and financial investment behind this idea and into this category, which causes a lot of activity, funding activity, entrepreneurs move into the space. There's a lot of excitement and a lot of that is real, but the financial expectations or the expectations of the capital really get ahead of where the technology actually is at that point in time. And so you get then the sort of boom and bust cycle where expectations get reined in. There's a sort of disillusionment period, prices fall, and then people seemingly give up on the category for a period of time. But you know, fortunately, builders continue to build. And then you enter sort of the golden era of that particular technology, which is when it becomes more mature. It's actually can be commercially applied in ways that are are more meaningful. Not just more meaningful, but also more mainstream. And- yeah, absolutely. It, it reaches mainstream usage and expectations are more closely aligned with reality. And I think we've obviously seen a lot of that pattern manifest in the Web3 space as well, which makes sense considering we really think about this as a new paradigm in technology, more specifically a new computing paradigm. 
So no surprise in that regard that it sort of fits so yeah. neatly into this framework. Completely. And I think besides being a totally new kind of technology, it's also unique in that it opens up new things to financialization because it creates digital objects that are freely tradable by anyone in an ultra-democratized way. So that means there are fundamentally more new types of participants who can start to use the technology and experiment with the technology. And the technology is fundamentally about experimenting with incentives and coordination and collective assets. Yeah, crypto allows for people to make digital objects that can be freely traded in their own venue. Normally, the existence of a marketplace requires state-like powers to create and make functional a marketplace. Now, the engineers can create the marketplace that allows these things to emerge incredibly quickly. Yeah, totally. And then back to the taxonomy. There's games where there's just like crypto-enabled gaming economies. Mm -hmm. Then there's games where there's play to earn that's related to that. And then there's games that are just about the technology and being on-chain. So let's switch gears and actually go deeper on on on-chain gaming. So we've talked about these qualities, you know, financialization, composability, consensus. We've talked about the underlying components that make this uniquely enabled by crypto and about the deployment phase, which we're way far off. We're not even, I think we're at the very beginnings of like, even before the installation phase here, if we're using the Perez framework. So what is on-chain gaming? And then let's actually break down What trends we're seeing in on-chain gaming specifically? Well, there are different degrees of Web3 or crypto nativeness, if you will, in the sense that some games only have assets that are actually stored on-chain, whereas other Mm -hmm. games have much more of the actual game mechanics, so the logic and things like that, that actually reside on-chain. So fully on-chain games are the strong form version of Web3 or crypto games in general. What we mean by that specifically is that you're not just talking about having NFTs or tokens within the game, but actually putting more of the core game architecture, either the logic or other components, basically the whole game is running on-chain. That's what we mean when we say fully on-chain. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. By the way, one quick note, just for the listeners, for context, like, When you say strong, Ariana, I think this is what you mean. You're not just talking like in a normative label, like a judgment, like this is strong versus weak. It's actually a framework that Chris has used, which is this idea that the stronger form of technologies are often the ones that'll dominate the future, but that oftentimes along the way, there's a quote weaker form. Sometimes like a good analogy be like the hybrid cloud before we got to, you know, like open cloud or things like that, that sort of is on the way to making things happen because very few entities can actually make such a big leap without that sort of intermediary. So that's kind of a way to think about the strong versus weak form of the technology. Yeah, and specifically as it pertains to games, it's very much not used in a judgmental sense in that, In my opinion, there will be some of the best games will be the quote unquote weak form of on-chain. They'll just be really well designed and, you know, have amazing art and be really fun to play. And then some quote unquote strong form on-chain games will actually not be that great and some will be amazing. So I think there's plenty of room for great experiences for gamers in either of those categories. So that's why I think we're seeing... Again, it's a super early category, super early days, but it is attracting a number of really smart builders, most of whom, at least from what I've seen, are very crypto native. So they're not necessarily Web 2 game makers who are coming into Web 3, which is what I think we've seen a lot of in some of the quote unquote weaker form version of games. But many of them are brought up in the crypto ethos and are making their first games within this new paradigm. So That won't necessarily always be the case, but I do think it's sort of an interesting distinction from a talent perspective. I would also go a step further and say that not only is it bringing in crypto native talent, which is great, and this is for better and for worse from both the accessibility point of view, as well as this in a great way from the builder point of view, because it's really protecting the space for a group of people to build together without being like interfered with all these like random inputs. But It's also kind of insidery in the sense that you have to be kind of a really good programmer and a smart contract programmer to actually even play most on-chain games, I've found. Yeah. And I mean, I don't even know, Eddie, if you would think of gas optimization challenges as a form of on-chain gaming, because I think they are. And again, very smart contract programmery, insidery 
sometimes the gas golfing and it's sometimes it's for fun and it feels a little self-indulgent. Sure. Other times it's actually very useful because it's trying to help people figure out how to be efficient in a world of constraints where Absolutely. we haven't things haven't arrived yet. So it's kind of a both. I don't know if you'd add that to a taxonomy. No, I totally but- think that they are. I mean, there are genres of games that are traditional games that are for programmers, right? All the Zactronics games, which I'm a huge fan of, the Factorio Dyson Sphere program, Satisfactory Corner of the World, that's basically games for programmers by programmers. It's an insane little corner, hardly mainstream. Well, you could argue some of it's gotten into the mainstream, but yeah, they're relatively inaccessible. And if you go to that framework, I'm talking about the financialization composability consensus framework. I think it actually maps really cleanly onto the weak and strong form because financialization is simpler. Two, it just requires free tradability of discrete objects or fungible tokens. That's it. And you get financialization, which is why a lot of the earlier experiments are traditional games with digital objects that emerge from them that are tradable. Composability is where we get more into modern world or user-generated content world, where there's a fundamental game. It still has centralized characteristics or is generally centralized, but components of the game have been opened up to extension and remixing and recombining. And then consensus all the way at the extreme is where the game logic is controlled and governed by a blockchain that has its own consensus. So once it's sort of emerges from the hands or leaves the hands of the original creators, it is governed by the rules that it was designed to be governed by. And that might be nobody. That might be the gamers themselves. That might be the game creators. It could be a council. It could be a random event in the game that <laughs> determines what happens, right? It could be anything. We've seen the fewest experiments all the way at the end. And we've seen the most experiments at the beginning in financialization. It's funny you say that though, especially when I think about phenomena like Dom Hoffman and the loot game community and things like that. I don't know. Does that count as on-chain? I don't know. Like, where does that fit? Yeah, that's part of what made loot so compelling is that it had these characteristics that were available to on-chain programming, but that's it. Like they didn't have the game structure. It had the properties that you would use in the context of a game. So it kind of alludes to an on-chain game. It's like, here's these things, they've been scattered around, and now you can use them as fundamental building blocks. That's like what a fully on-chain game author wants to get to. Like if you made a game that maximally took advantage of a blockchain's consensus, that would look something like creating a game world and game rules that are just freely and permissionlessly available to be played with. Got it. So you can see how loot kind of gestured at this idea that, well, you can just put this out there and create a building block for others to use or others to play in. And where do you guys think something like Dark Forest comes in? I kind of want to start naming some examples of early on-chain games and the forms of them just to give people a bit of a flavor. Like, what do you think works and doesn't work about it? Where does that come in? I think Dark Forest is the best example we've seen that takes advantage of all three and actually takes advantage of financialization the least. It did have a little bit because there were some NFTs that were created as the result of Dark Forest and those kind of traded around. But most of the experimentation was in the composability and consensus area. So to link it back to those ideas, composability, people could create new extensions of the game logic in Dark Forest without any permission or explicit access control lists or something designed by the Dark Forest creators. They could just come in there and start to experiment with it and combine things. And they did. They made plugin markets. They made new types of UIs, all kinds of cool things that are only possible with really deep composability. And then on the consensus front, once a game instance started, and you can still go make a Dark Forest game lobby now, it's out of the hands of the game creators. They started the rules, kind of like a blind watchmaker, so to speak, and kick off the universe in a burst of randomness. And it just goes until it completes. And that means that it's working. It has rules that are being enforced, but not by the game makers, but by the blockchain. Cool. One question for you guys. I just want to go back to the definitional part of it. Why not just call on-chain gaming just decentralized gaming? Like, what's the difference? No difference. I mean, the best name that's not just the literal description is the Lattice team and Justin Glibert, who was one of the original creators of Dark Forest. He co-runs Zero X Park and stuff like that. He calls it autonomous worlds because he's trying to get at this idea that the world, once it's set into motion, just continues because he loves the fully maximally strong form. He loves the idea that the game can have its own consensus outside 
Yeah, I love that actually, because I remember reading the post that the Xerox Park folks put out on on-chain procedural generation, which it has this great line in there about how, because I'm very into world building as a narrative editor person. I don't know how to play on-chain gaming to be clear, but I love this idea that they had this really great line that stuck in my head, which is like, you can compress a complex world into an executable. And I literally have this image that you'd like run a program that's like so lightweight and you can unfurl a full world out of it. It feels very exactly. genie in the bottle. Like let the genie out of the bottle and see what happens. Oh, yeah. Like it's extremely so, exciting. No, someday on a Zoom, I'm going to just play for you the world generation procedure for a Dwarf Fortress world. It's going to blow your mind. What does that mean though? Tell us about that visually for us now. Oh, well, what happens is it kicks off a process and like a little progress bar and then a map, like a world map, a square begins and like the ocean forms first and then the landscape and then mountains and rivers start to form and forests. Oh, wow. And then little villages pop up and they start to spread and you can see them kind of like spreading and clashing. And then some some little towns disappear. It basically generates, you decide, but it can generate a thousand years of history. And names on the left side are scrolling by like names of heroes in history and epic written works are just going by and they're all being randomly generated. And they constitute the history of the world that you just made by running the program. Uh, yeah, I want to watch that now. That's awesome. Oh, it's I beautiful. definitely want to watch it. It's really beautiful. I love that. So, what's really fascinating though is that reminds me a lot of this idea of like emergent systems and just, you know, the thinking around complexity and complex economies and whatnot. And funnily, like this is very bottom up, which is what we love about, you know, things crypto. It's not top down. But on the flip side, two things I want to make sure I push you guys on. One, do you really want a decentralized? created world, like the best created products are not necessarily decentralized created. And then two, the other component I want to also bring up is that honestly, in some of the early crypto enabled gaming economies, it feels like you actually have to introduce central planning to make them work. And that feels kind of confusing for what we're talking about here. So let me just throw that kind of open-ended set of questions for you guys to help me tackle and break down for the listeners. So I think it's difficult to have a cohesive world if there are no at least frameworks put into place by the initial creators of that world, which at the same time, on the other side, if you have a fully centrally planned world, the creativity will sort of be limited because one of the things that makes bottoms up places really interesting is the fact that they have contributions from a lot of different kinds of people. So I think it's interesting to think about How can we provide the tools and frameworks for people to be maximally creative in these worlds without necessarily imposing too much structure? I think that is a challenge that hasn't been really resolved yet. But to me, that seems like a really interesting design space because you can take advantage of the fact that people are so creative and bring so many different things to the table But without any sort of guidelines, it can become massively chaotic and not cohesive. So I think think that's sort of what could be a really interesting output. The history of designing games so far has always been a central set of authors make a game and are the totalitarians over that game. That is, games have always been designed in a centralized way. And that's great. We've learned a lot about that. We know a lot about it. There's decades and decades of experimentation and learning there. And we have near zero knowledge about what it takes to make a game in a totally decentralized way. The closest we have is maybe like a Minecraft where many people make mods and then you can run your own server and you can kind of customize the rules and then other people can come and play on your server. But even then, when they come and join that server and play with you, they are playing according to the set of rules and mods and everything that the controllers of the server chose. So it's all kind of fractured around and everyone's free to experiment, but they're experimenting like a painter or like a DJ. They're not experimenting all in the same sandbox at once. That's right. Just because there's a bunch of mini worlds doesn't mean that there's actually a decentralized world. Exactly. And that's a subtlety that a lot of people miss. I think is really, really important is allowing people to on their personal device or their personal server to cobble together their experiment is amazing. And I love that. And that's decentralized in a sense. But it's not decentralized in the sense that every time you step into some game world, you're stepping into a place that has a king. Somewhere there is a king. And what would it be like if we could make game worlds where there is no king or the rules are made by nature, right? And the game designer made nature 
and then walked away. That's really a, such a beautiful idea. I credit Justin Glibert with helping me think through that. And we, we talk a lot about it. But that's why it's a little abstract. And I appreciate it can be hard to really grasp unless you think a lot about the way games work and the way networks work and things like that. But I'm confident that we'll experiment in that area and there will be beautiful, very interesting things. That is the thing that excites me most. That's exciting. So just to kind of ground that for a second in some concrete examples. So Dark Forest would be an example of giving, it's almost like the primordial soup, like you're just putting the ingredients to create worlds and let nature create nature That's right. onto the blockchain and that's on chain. And then something like loot would be like the king throwing some seeds into the fertile ground and then letting like everyone else in the community take it, extend it, turn it into something that they want to. I don't know if these are fitting analogies. No, that's exactly right. And in Dark Forest, the game they made is a very simple game, but it had concrete and very legible rules. And anybody who wanted to extend on it could extend it and they can extend it and keep tweaking and playing with the game in that universe as long as they don't break the underlying physics, the underlying nature. They can do whatever they want. It just has to adhere to nature. And think about how big that expressive space is. Yeah, but that's one question I have for you guys. Just a quick sidebar, but that actually really confuses me because I've heard you guys talk about this when we've had many discussions early on about, you know, on-chain gaming, evolution of on-chain gaming, what's possible, what's not. The thought that I'm always sitting there in those meetings in the back of my head thinking, well, why would you want to stick to the rules of nature when the whole point of being able to create these worlds is you can break these worlds? Like I have to ask that really quickly in terms of the physics, because I've heard people talk about how you can break physics in games and why not? Well, it's more nature and physics as a metaphor. The way nature and physics works is there are baseline rules that we can never violate, like the conservation of matter and energy or, you know, all kinds of subatomic things, right? Those are rules we can't tweak. In one of these games, you would make those rules and those would be like the nature. But the nature could be whatever you want. You know, there could be no gravity. The gravity could be crazy. They could be, you know, the universe could be much simpler. It could be we live in a flat world where people can communicate faster than the speed of light, but they still have to walk. Yeah. You could make a funny thing. So it's more nature and the rules of nature and physics as a metaphor. You would determine what the physics are. But it's important that there be some of those quote unquote physics or nature rules, because otherwise, I mean, think about it. If I could come in and change the rules so that all of a sudden everybody was my subject, in this virtual world, exactly. that then was immutable, then nobody's going to want to play that game. Yeah, like, exactly. Uh, right. I might exactly. love it for a week and then everybody's going to be <laughs> gone. And so no more fun, you know? Exactly. Yeah. And that's exactly what it would be if, let's say, we forgot about blockchains, we forgot about consensus, and instead we had one computer and we made everyone an admin on that computer. Oh, yeah. Right. What would it, what would happen? <laughs> it would degrade into total chaos immediately as someone deletes like every other user and like changes everyone else's permissions. Basically, one way of putting this is that the entropy of this system, the maximum entropy of the system, yeah. the maximum creativity of the system is is very low. It will collapse into someone just sees control and nothing fun is possible. And just from a creator's point of view, just logically, basically, any extra amount of friction where you're spending on coordination that you don't have to, that's a cyclical kind of diminishing cycle is not worthwhile when you can actually be working on something that is much more generative and yeah. Exactly. Whereas if you have the blockchain to enforce the rules, we can give everyone very well understood and very incredible creative expressive powers. And then they have a lot to experiment with in that bounded space. So it's exactly to Ariana's point is like, you kind of need a very powerful force to ensure the rules as designed are adhered to. In the real world, that's nature. And in computers, that's consensus. That's right. The blockchain encoded thinking. Exactly. And so to tie the threads, first, I'm convinced. So you guys have now sold me on why not have the rules be you know changeable and breakable, but they could be whatever rules within the thing. And that's really the point. But two, when you mentioned earlier, Ariana, that you think the ideal would be to see frameworks. It's essentially like a scaffolding to set up the world where people can play and feel like they can create an experiment, but also not so top-down where it's controlled by a single person, as you were saying earlier, Eddie, nor so bottom-up that you literally have a thousand people doing admin, taking over the world and just deciding to all become like the owners or whatever. That would be madness. Yeah, that works really well. 
So how do you think loosely this will kind of play out like based on kind of what you're seeing already? I get that it's early days, but I'm asking because I'm trying to understand how you think this will go mainstream, how it'll start moving forward. Well, to me, one question is, do the developers who are making on-chain games actually want to build games that can reach a mainstream audience? Yes. a great question. Because all of the efforts I have seen so far have been super interesting, but very narrow in their target audience. Because as you were saying earlier, you do need to be fairly technical in order to play. So it's very clear that that is the audience, not just in terms of what you need to know to be able to play, but also what these games look like and the language of them. Like they're all really targeted towards a crypto native developer ecosystem, which is great. That's totally fine. And they may end up being some of the most beloved games by just staying with that audience. But I think the question is, if we're talking about mainstream usage, will that category of founder decide that they want to build something that can kind of bridge out of that or not? Either is fine. But I think that question is going to define the future of the category. It's also possible that the gap between the strong form, fully on-chain games that we see now and the quote-unquote weaker form, some Web3 component, but not fully on-chain games, the gap between those two starts to diminish. And as blockchains become more performant, some of the limitations that are currently imposed become less of an issue. I suspect it'll be both because how the rest of technology has always played out. There's some place where the very tech-native kind of developer influencers will always go. And then there's places where people are able to do things en masse. And then there's places where those worlds intersect. But I think that'll never change. But I do wonder how that's going to play out. Eddie, do you have thoughts on that too? It's a fantastic question. Right now, I totally agree with Ariana. I see more deep enthusiasts making playful experiments for other deep enthusiasts, which is super fun. And I love to see it. But that's the big question. It makes a really, really big difference. And, And whether or not we end up going mainstream as a result of specific technological changes like scaling throughput and the cost of these systems and so on, or UX improvements, or whether it's the interests of the space. It's hard to say, but I can't wait to see you. It is worth always noting that in every history of every technological revolution, there is a phase of the constraints phase where we live within these like very hard limits. So, yeah. you know, even in the procedural generation post, the whole point of them having to solve this problem has to do with storage constraints. And so totally. there's a lot of things that people have to do just based on the constraints. And in the blockchain world, we obviously live with many, many constraints. Totally. And let me say, just to like address that head on, I already hear the naysayers whispering or yelling at me <laughs> that like, there's no way you can make a fully on-chain game. The computational limits are so low, whatever. I totally there's get it. goblin voice again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, okay, I'm not goblin. I don't <laughs> <laughs> I want to be a goblin, but look, they're right. Of course, you could not run Valorant on Ethereum. That would be insane. It's more many, many, many orders of magnitude away from that. But there are simpler types of games and all kinds of interesting developments in scaling solutions that could allow us to put incrementally more and more on chain. One of my favorite projects, MUD, MUD.dev by the Lattice team, they have a framework for developing these types of games that offers more of the affordances that game developers might be used to. And they're taking full advantage of composability, not so much financialization, and not so much consensus by deliberately leaning toward game developers running their own blockchain, basically their own little L2, that will be able to check important parts of game state if the developers want onto L1 or L2 to preserve those things and to give them the sort of neutrality that makes consensus so powerful. But that's just something they're experimenting with. By the way, is this intentional? I have to ask this because, of course, I have to ask a park question because, of course, I always freaking bring up a park thing. Everyone teases me about it, but whatever. Is that intentionally a play on MUD? Oh, yeah. It is? Okay, because here's a fun story for you guys, which you guys may not even know. But one of the earliest MUDs was Lambda Moo, and it was at Xerox Park. And it was a multi-user dungeon, which is what MUD stands for. And it was like a way for people to collaborate. But here's a fun fact that no one really knows that well. It evolved over time into technology for creating more shared collaboration in the workplace. And what started off as like a toy for programmers to play with each other later ended up becoming a precursor to 
Microsoft's meeting technology because they sold that technology to Microsoft later to create telepresence, essentially early version of Zoom. So it's kind of a fun fact for how things start and go mainstream. Yeah, right? I love that stuff. Yeah, I mean, part of what makes the game and conversation in the context of crypto so exciting is that gamers are always pushing the envelope because they're compelled to follow delight, right? As a gamer, I know this feeling you're just willing to jump over so many more hurdles and, <laughs> and crash through more walls because it's just so fascinating. And that's kind of where crypto is. And I just genuinely believe a lot of the people who want to see these incredible multiplayer, composable consensus, autonomous worlds, all these themes we're talking about, those people will discover things that end up being critical, not just for the rest of crypto, but also for the ways we think about technology generally. I'm totally sure of that. Well, on that note, actually, going back to this question of constraints, the original question I asked you guys was obviously about what you guys see as coming ahead. And Ariana, you mentioned this question, which is whether the early developers really want it to be something more than for themselves, for better or worse, it doesn't matter, no judgment. And then Eddie, you're pointing out that a lot of these constraints will be solved. I think it's also worth noting that there is a phase in every computing cycle when you go from those constraints to the world of abundance, a whole new set of primitives can develop and things can happen. And that includes creator narrative things. I mean, I'm just thinking the game that I've been playing lately for a long time, actually not just lately, is Kentucky Route Zero. And you literally could not play that game like 25, 30 years ago because... A game that has this weird, surreal, open-ended story could never have existed in that day because you would never have the abundance of those bits to waste on such a game. Whereas today you can. And that's one of the things I absolutely love because it just, you know, it's just so crazy to think about like what you go from when you go from a world of constraints to abundance. I radically agree. When there's abundance, it's easier for the experimenters to explore the design space. And for more experimenters to enter the space. Ariana's earlier point. So, okay, quick pulse check then. I'm going to have you guys do this lightning round. So Ariana, you're, I think, the primary GP on gaming and you have your team like Cara and Elena and a bunch of people that work with you on this. What have you seen that works so far and that doesn't? Like, where do you see current traction? This is meant to be a quick lightning round kind of pulse check. Well, I'm excited to see more games live because right now we're still in a period where there have obviously been some meaningful game launches and a bunch of users coming into the Web3 space through those games. But even just looking at our portfolio, but I know this to be true outside of it as well, there is just so much that's going to launch in the next 18 to 24 months. This sort of little known secret, I mean, obviously it's well known to everybody in the games industry, but not necessarily obvious from the outside about games is that they can take a really, really, really long time to be built. It's not uncommon. That's so funny because I was literally about to ask you, like, why are they taking so long to launch? Oh, well, you know, there's just a lot that goes into a really well-made game. And this is true in Web 2 games as well. So, you know, it's not uncommon to see games to take four, five, even six years from start to finish. So even if teams are cutting down those cycles to two to three years, many of those teams raised capital in 2021 or early 22. And they just haven't launched yet. So I'm personally very excited to see a wave of new launches coming because that's going to be really beneficial, obviously, for those teams, but also just for bringing new energy and new enthusiasm for the space as a whole. And then one more question for you along those lines, though, just how do you assess what's working versus not working when you're in the room? Like, what do you look for? How do you kind of know? Yeah, I would say team is one of the primary components that we look to. And within the category of on-chain and more broadly, just Web3 games, I could see very different types of teams. As we've described earlier, there can be very crypto-native, scrappy hacker-type collectives that are building fully on-chain games, which is a very different profile than you know a super seasoned studio head or someone who has been producing major Web 2 games for decades, starting a Web 3 game. So depending on what they're trying to build, we would be very excited to meet very different archetypes, which I think is something that's very interesting and unique about this category. 
I'm so glad you answered that because one of the questions I had in my mind for you was, do you think that someone coming from web two to web three would be more successful or someone who's crypto native going into something more gaming would be successful? You kind of just answered that because you said the whole It really depends what they want to build. I think having a super smart, but very inexperienced developer wanting to build a massive AAA game, that's going to be a really difficult thing to pull off. Not impossible, but definitely a very uphill battle. Whereas if you have someone who has that experience, who's done that many times, and they're now moving into the Web3 space because they think it's a better model for games, they're obviously going to need to bring in or hire or lean on us for crypto native Web3 experience. But it's a slightly easier transition, I would say, or at least that's my current working hypothesis. But that single super smart, scrappy developer might build an incredible on-chain game just in a very different fashion. Yeah. And this is also yet another way to get at the same question. But do you guys think like design is going to win or technology is going to win or narrative is going to win when you think about that? That's super tough. (laughs) I know. That's a terrible question. No, it's a really (laughs) tough one. But I feel incredibly strongly that the UX is totally unacceptable still. I mean, I love it. But then I think to myself, like, how are regular people going to get this? It makes no sense. It's just impossible. Thankfully, I think that crypto game developers, Web3 game developers will benefit from a lot of the coming improvements in crypto UX. And that's a top priority for the whole space. So I think that that'll proliferate and they'll get to benefit. But it's not just like the security and custody and wallet system and, you know, identity and all these key components of a streamlined experience. It's also conceptually speaking, trying to convey to people the distinction between what they're using. You know, like when people use a regular computer today, They don't think really about its architecture or its internal components or even much really about how the internet itself works. What has happened is that brilliant entrepreneurs and builders have abstracted these things so people can remain concerned only about what they need to remain concerned about. That work hasn't been done in crypto. We're struggling to do it because there's so much to do. But that needs to happen before someone can engage with an autonomous world in a meaningful way to even appreciate what that means and appreciate the powers and responsibilities of doing so. Yeah, that's great. It also makes me think there's always this debate about whether any open source community can actually do design at all because you always need some kind of opinionated designer quote at the top. And it's funny because the argument is like, it hasn't really worked so far in a great way, like which is one of the reasons a lot of open source solutions and alternative things don't work. But I do wonder if in crypto, some of these other things can kind of help bootstrap those shortcomings. Yeah, I don't know that design by committee works. Yeah, like yeah. Kind of what you're saying, right? Is that I don't think that I've seen evidence that Neither have designing I. something as a group is a as a totally unstructured permissionless group, not even just a group, but the worst type of group where anybody can come and go with any motive, right? That seems like chaos. There's basically no evidence that an enjoyable, mainstreamable, truly compelling game is authorable this way. It hasn't just never happened. And I find that exciting because we're going to learn. I think what will end up happening is something in between where you will have individuals and small groups making incredible pieces that they can throw out there that other people will kind of attach it to independently. The closest analogy I have is look at a huge, complex, open source ecosystem. Like look at Python, right? And everything around Python, the programming language. Although there is the PSF, the Python Software Foundation, they don't guide strictly how people add to and extend Python. And they did not guide Python toward the way it went sideways at one time into data science and data engineering and scientific computing and like web stuff. They didn't guide that process. That process happened because everyone that was using Python was able to just adapt it and modify it and extend it for their purposes. And that ecosystem is really chaotic. A lot of the code, obviously, I don't mean this in a denigrating way, just a lot of the code isn't good. But some of the code is so good that it powers entire industries and entire companies and is critical infrastructure. That weird messiness and that distribution where these random, amazing hits combined together to make incredible things. And there's kind of a long tail of flora and fauna, so to speak. (laughs) Like that's what open source and an open permissionless system looks like. It has that long tail property. 
And we're not used to seeing that in games. The closest we have to that is if you go to Steam and you pick a popular game and go to the workshop page where all the mods are, you just scroll down, scroll down, scroll down. The top 10 most popular mods for any game are incredible. It's rare that I don't feel compelled to add a mod to a game when there's a rich enough community. There's always something that's just a no-brainer. But if you go all the way down to the bottom of the tail, there's always kind of random stuff <laughs> that doesn't make sense. And that should never detract from how you perceive the totality of the mod community. It's an incredible thing. It just has this property that we need to take for granted. And we don't have that in games as games yet. We have that in mods or UGC or little parts of games. We don't have that in whole games. And we will see that in whole games. And that's weird, but culture will have to accommodate That's it. super interesting. Well, I'll just put a plug for crypto on that too, though, because that's again where a couple of things. One, currently we're in a system where you have one person designing design. In crypto, we can have multiple, a marketplace of designs and front ends that can like play out and win. It's actually a truer marketplace and more open than any other system in that sense. Two, you can also reward, again, different stakeholders for different contributions in a way that you can't do in current open source in a very clean and usable and easy way. So that's another form of evolution there. But yeah, no, I, I'm bought into that for sure. And my last lightning round question is, what are you excited about for this year ahead in on-chain gaming? Like, is there something specifically fun or interesting that you've seen that you've caught your eye that you're excited about? Ariana, you mentioned that you are excited to see things launch, so that's yeah. great. But what else might you say on that? So I'm personally excited to see a lot less friction in user onboarding flows because I know that has been a real pain point for new users wanting desperately to start interacting yes. with crypto games, buying NFTs, having a wallet and being able to play. But there's just so many steps and a lot of users trail off at each of those steps. So we're starting to see it. Zed just launched a new version of their onboarding where literally in three clicks, you can be in a horse race. And that oh, to fantastic. me is really what we need to see a lot more of. Obviously, you know, not every game is going to have the same onboarding flow, but just this idea of being able to reduce the number of steps that people have to take to go from, you know, non-user to user is something that I'm very excited about. That's fantastic. I completely agree with that. Badly, badly needed. Something that I'm interested in seeing is how all these interest... Oh, <laughs> Sorry, just have, Take your time. I don't know why like the last sentence I can't get out. Go goblin mode. Yeah, no, one no, no. One thing I'm interested in seeing is <laughs> we gotta keep that in. I'm very total. interested in oh, it. God. Go ahead, my <laughs> I can't wait to see what all these incredible teams are doing with regard to gaming platforms, gaming development platforms. Because everyone rightly recognizes that look, developing games is hard. Developing games using crypto-like systems, like smart contract style programming and so on, is even more difficult. It has tons of challenges. Even if you run your own little network and you don't have to worry about the constrictions of consensus on L1, it's very, very, very hard. Solidity and smart contracts were not really developed for game design, for game development. SUI has some really interesting stuff coming out regarding game development. Sui is in the blockchain yeah. that's from uh, Mistin Labs with the programming language Move we talked about in the previous episode. Exactly. Uh, MUD is another one I called out. There's just a ton of efforts to solve this, to make game development on-chain really, really smooth and interesting. And we'll see. We'll see if any of those development patterns stick. One thing we didn't address, I just realized this, and you, Ariana, and Eddie were actually the authors on this post. We didn't really address how metaverse comes in and doesn't come into this. Like, yeah. I know there's a common, you know, an intersection with thinking about economies and gaming. And also for the listeners, we did do a wonderful deep dive with Herman Narula, one of our founders, and also the author of the book Virtual Society in a past episode. So please listen to that if you want to hear more discussion of that. But I kind of want you guys to quickly answer where Metaverse does and doesn't come in when it comes to this world of crypto-enabled gaming overall. B, I also want to understand the distinction between an autonomous world and a Metaverse and what really is an autonomous world, or is that just another name for something else? So if you guys could answer that really quickly. Yeah, with that post, we just tried to distill down some of the elements that would be 
probably necessary conditions for something to be considered a metaverse. Because we were seeing the term metaverse used to describe basically everything in some ways, but also used in a very limiting way because it almost always, at least the stock image included with every article about the metaverse is, you know, an Oculus headset or something like that. And I don't necessarily think that that's a requirement or prerequisite for something to be considered a metaverse. So it's possible that eventually some on-chain game worlds become full metaverses. But I don't think we've seen that yet, or at least not metaverses in the strong form version to use that framework again, just because they have been, you know, I think early experiments and not necessarily fully built out to the extent that I would consider, again, a a full metaverse. Obviously, what a full metaverse is can be very much up for debate. So TBD. But I think for the time being, at least from my perspective, we haven't really realized that. Yeah. And let me also say that there is some contention. Yes, I hear you, Neil, about whether or not there is the metaverse or a metaverse. I recognize completely why he sees this, Neil Stevenson, right? Sees this as an important shibboleth of whether you get it, right? The metaverse, a metaverse. I politely disagree because I see it as like talking about the internet. Is there the internet or a internet. We can talk about what makes an internet while recognizing that they're all kind of intertwined in one object and still call it the. So that's like a holy war in metaverse dialectic world, apparently. But where does that... Yeah, where does it connect with autonomous worlds and so on? Yeah, well, and before you get to autonomous world, where does it even connect with just crypto, basically? In my mind, the core idea is that when you're using the internet or an internet or whatever, when you're using the internet... Whose turf are you on? That is the question. If you are using it on someone else's turf all the time and all the key components for you, like those ingredients, the property rights, the identity, the ability to compose things are all tightly constrained by the controller of that system. You're just using their computer. That's not a metaverse. A metaverse is where the system, those key components, those rights and powers that make the real world economically and creatively and socially so powerful, when those rules transcend the tolerances and permission givings of the person who controls the system. So if you had a system that was able to enforce those rules on its own neutrally and give you a concept of identity that you truly control, or give you property rights that you truly control, or allow you to compose and remix and recombine things in a way you control, then your power and your freedom and your capabilities are much, much, much larger. And they start to approach the powers and capabilities you have in the real world. That's what makes it a metaverse. I have to push you guys on this one more though, because as a listener, I find that not as satisfying an answer. Like it's great. It's crypto-centric. But I also feel like as a user, I don't really care. Like what benefit does it give me as a user beyond ownership and control and freedom? Yeah, well, to put a finer point on it, the ownership and the control, those are things that end users benefit from, but may not appreciate directly, kind of like decentralization. I see decentralization as a developer feature, a builder feature. The people who use these systems, they benefit only indirectly. Exactly. Like if you go to some regular person in the street and like, isn't it great how decentralized email is? (laughs) Like, who no, cares? I, <laughs> I send a message. Okay, that's it. I get spam in my inbox, whatever. Like, that doesn't matter. But people absolutely do benefit from the decentralization of, for example, the DNS system. Yeah. The, the fact that you can system. go claim a domain, any entrepreneur can come along and they don't have to ask anyone. They can just start up a service. They can start up a website. And websites exist independent of any specific tech company. That's why... Despite being a clunkier experience, the browser and websites are so amazing and always the first source of innovation. So people get to benefit downstream from the openness and decentralization of these systems. So why do you care? Why do you get to benefit? Like, why do you care whether it's a metaverse, an open system, or a closed virtual world? Because the virtual world is going to be rent collected and neutered and highly, highly constrained. It's going to be less innovative and less dynamic and less creative. If you're a content creator, 
or something like that, you're going to have fewer options on how to construct your business. It's so on and so forth, right? Like it's really a property for the people who want to directly use and build on these systems. But at the end of the day, a user will be able to tell the difference. You will want the open system, not the closed system. I find that answer far more satisfying. Thank you. And how you connect all that back to on-chain gaming? Is there a connection now more specifically with Metaverse, on-chain gaming, and this quote phrase, autonomous worlds, which I believe was coined, like you said, I think, Eddie, by Justin Glibert. Can you guys tell me more about that? Because I love the phrase, frankly. I'm a big believer. I love anything having to do with world building and world building. But like, what does that mean? I haven't talked to him about it specifically, so I wouldn't want to misrepresent his POV on that. Yeah. So speaking my own interpretation, I also don't want to speak for Justin and he does this very well himself. And there's videos of him talking about similar subjects online. It's taking this exact idea that I unpacked about the metaverse and then add that to a specific game. Right now, when you play a game, you, and believe me, obviously I love games, you get to enjoy the world that that game maker made for you. But if we were able to make that game world autonomous and independent and open and manipulable by anybody who wants to come along and modify it according to its rules, then you open it up for experimentation and innovation and incredible people to build new amazing things on top of it in the same way you'd think about any other network. That's the fundamental idea. It's a way to turn a game into almost like a platform, almost a network for other people. That's what's beautiful about it. I think if I were to bring it full circle, just based on this entire conversation, I think what I'm interpreting from it, and this kind of feels like a good way to distill down what we've talked about so far. The idea until now is that worlds were made by gods, by kings, by single publishers. This idea now that you can literally have a world just simply running on its own by itself without having to ask for permission from anybody to do whatever it needs to do, but to your earlier point, still have some basic rules that it follows just like any other natural world is I think the greatest way to distill it and kind of the whole arc of this conversation. I radically agree. Mm -hmm. And I'm sorry if like, I have like this like crazy idea and I feel like I'm borderline unhinged every time I (laughs) talk about this. You are an unhinged goblin. Do not apologize. Not at all. Fantastic. Thank you so much, you guys, for joining this episode of Web3 with A6 and Z. Awesome. Thank you, Sonal. Thank you. It was great to be here. Thank you for listening to Web3 with A6 and Z. You can find show notes with links to resources, books, or papers discussed, transcripts, and more at a6nzcrypto.com. This episode was produced and edited by Sonal Choksi. That's me. The episode was technically edited by our audio editor, Justin Golden. Credit also to Moonshot Design for the art and all thanks to support from A6NZ Crypto. To follow more of our work and get updates, resources from us, and from others, be sure to subscribe to our Web3 weekly newsletter. You can find it on our website at a6nzcrypto.com. Thank you for listening and for subscribing. Let's go.